Good morning. It's good to see you. It was fun to laugh together last night and enjoy some serious silliness. This morning we arrive at the last section of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. He continues the exhortation and formation that he has been engaged in throughout the letter, first in the mode of thanksgiving, remembering what God has been doing in this community, reminding them of his time with them, then turning to speak about God's will, which is their holiness, their sharing in God's own life. And uh, in the section that we're looking at this morning, he turns to talk about the kind of ongoing ministry they are to have one to another. If you turn with me to chapter 5. The previous section has ended, Therefore, encourage one another, and each of you build the other up, just as you are doing. We appeal to you, brothers and sisters, respect those who labor among you and have charge of you in the Lord and admonish you. Esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, to admonish the idlers, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all. See that none of you repays evil for evil but always seek to do good to one another and to all. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise the words of prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Beloved, pray for us. Greet all the brothers and sisters with a holy kiss. I solemnly command you by the Lord that this letter be read to all. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So I'm reading from the NRSV, and even as I'm doing so, I'm... I'm wrestling with their, I think, correct decision liturgically to, um, to translate brothers in a way that embraces the whole converse, congregation, brothers and sisters. But they seem to have thought Paul was a little too repetitive here, and so they'll stick in a beloved or all of them where Paul has brothers and sisters. Um, and so if I had read it uh, a little bit, perhaps from the RSV, from a from an, uh, translation that's not trying to do that move, it would be even more apparent how in this section Paul is addressing the congregation with family, familial language, family terms, brothers and sisters. Everything Paul has to say in this final section um, really builds on and gathers together what he has done in the rest of the letter, and actually not only in the previous parts of the letter, but in his time with them. There's nothing new in what Paul has to say here. Rather, his own presence has modeled for them the kind of patient, mutual exhortation and admonition and encouragement that they are to provide to one another. 
um, just to remind ourselves. In chapter 2, Paul says, You remember, brothers and sisters, our labor and toil. We worked night and day so that we might not burden any of you while we proclaim to you the good news of God. You were witnesses in God also how pure, upright, and blameless our conduct was toward you believers. What was that conduct, pure, blameless, upright? It wasn't simply morally upright. It was deeply, intensely loving. He says, we were gentle among you like a nurse tenderly caring for her own children. So deeply do we care for you that we determined to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, because we love you. As you know, we dealt with each of you like a father with his children, urging and encouraging you and pleading that you lead a life worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Timothy has continued Paul's manner of life in their midst, sent by Paul as an emissary. Timothy carried not only news, he he was not only there to find out how the Thessalonians were doing, but as Paul says to the Corinthians, Timothy will remind you, in word and in deed, of my pattern of life. Timothy will continue to model for you what it means to walk in a way worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. The challenge this church is facing and the challenge that Paul is facing as founder who is now separated from them by quite a bit of distance and time is that they are still on the way to learning what it means to walk worthy of this God, to live in accordance with this kingdom, this reign, this way of being human together. How do we walk in order to please God with our lives. This is God's good will for us, and Paul is convinced, in fact, that in facing the challenge of inculcating a new pattern of life in our community, God is out ahead of us. God is the one who's called us to this life. God is the one who has set us apart and made us holy. Paul is convinced that even though he is absent, they are taught by God to love one another. And yet God's action... And the letter will end with a strong statement about what God will do to complete this work of transformation. That work of God is not apart from the labor prompted by faith, the work motivated by love, the hope that is focused on Jesus Christ. It's not apart from human beings modeling this life before them. Paul and Silas and Timothy and others in the congregation who now come into focus. God uses precisely those human agents, those very human tasks of remembering, of reminding, of exhorting, of encouraging, of helping. Paul's aware here of just how long a process And how intentional a process being formed in Christ or having Christ formed in us is. Um, Just a good reminder for for all of us that everything Paul has to say here has the community in view. These are plural yous. This is one another ministry. And yet, as he said in in verse 11 in chapter 5, it's also the responsibility of each toward the other. 
This letter doesn't refer to any sort of offices uh, in the community. And some have concluded that Paul hadn't been there long enough to establish any structure or that perhaps the structure is quite fluid. Um, and, and that's certainly possible. But um, the Thessalonians, even if they had not had any kind of contact with the synagogue, would have had plenty of examples in their own culture of voluntary organizations, voluntary associations, people who got together around a trade or a shared interest, or just to have some friends to drink with once in a while, perhaps to take up a collection to promise to bury one another decently. And um, the inscriptions that we have um, that give evidence of these voluntary associations um, actually have a, a very wide range of titles. Um, <clears throat> so people who couldn't participate in the offices of the city wouldn't have been magistrates or, or city managers or stewards. Um, they had titles within their own organization. Um, and some of the titles remind me of um, uh, the kinds of creative titles our voluntary associations have had. I think my generation's not as into the Kiwanis or the Moose or the Lions as, as previous generations. I, I do remember as a young person being allowed to watch uh, an hour of TV on, I think it was on Monday nights. There was Happy Days and then Laverne and Shirley followed. And then I had to go to bed. Um, but um, Howard, the long-suffering father of the Cunningham family, uh, never really, I think, got to realize his great dream in life, which was to be the grand poobah of his lodge, right? So we don't have titles here. We're not told about elders or overseers, but I think it's unlikely that this community would not have some sort of organization, however informal. And Paul here refers not to offices, but to functions, which actually, um, well, presbyter means old person, um, which you all know, I'm sure, um, because with age comes wisdom. Um, but bishop, episcopos, is actually a function to, to oversee, to take care of. Um, Paul talks uh, in verse 12 here, um, not about offices, but about the sorts of functions that will later be particularly associated with bishops and presbyters. Um, he says, take notice of those who labor among you, who, um, the next word, the NRSV here has, uh, have charge of you in the Lord, um, some others will say who help you or take care of you in the Lord. And then take notice of those who admonish you. It's going to become clear that everybody is to admonish everyone else. So it, it may be the case that um, everyone is laboring in the community and everyone is also exercising some form of leadership or care. But certainly within um, a fairly short time and thinking about our own day, we also designate and recognize the gifts of the Spirit um, around particularly um, gifts of teaching and leadership. And we set people aside to labor among us. So this is a, a, if it's an early glimpse where there are no formal offices, it's still open, I think, and quite open to the kind of um, developments that we find even later in Paul's own letters when he writes the Philippians some years later, speaking, in fact, to deacons and presbyters. Um, my point here, though, is um, that we should focus on what Paul is, how Paul is describing the work of these people. 
take note of them suggests that there are some people at least doing this in an outstanding or exemplary way. The follow-up will show that everybody's expected to be involved in this building up of one another. Um, the labor, this, this idea of working in the community, um, it goes back to the very beginning where Paul has given thanks for the labor and the work that is prompted by their faith and their love. He's referred to his own labor on the one hand to, um, to support himself, but also his labor as a nursing mother, as a father, uh, as a brother to care for this new family. And so um, if we are all to labor in the community, there, there are still, there's still the need to look for some uh, who are perhaps laboring more intensely um, or more in a more exemplary way. And hold those people, he says, in great love. Um, those who have charge of you, as the NRSV says, this is, it's a word that means to stand before. And uh, it can, kind of has two meanings. One, it, it can mean to have a leadership role. Um, it can also mean to, to take care of without necessarily implying leadership. Um, and maybe we shouldn't try to cut the two meanings off from one another because in Paul's model, those who lead are the ones particularly charged with caring for um, the flock. I'm thinking about uh, the, the discussion of shepherding a few nights ago. Um, that model of shepherd, they're certainly leading. The shepherd goes out before. There's certainly a kind of authority that protects and that nurtures. Um, but the caring for, in Jesus' famous parable, the willingness to give one's life for the flock um, comes to the fore. Um, who might these leaders have been if, if we extrapolate from uh, the little bits of information we get in the letters and think about voluntary associations? Um, Acts 17 says that, that a group of believers have been meeting in Jason's house. In fact, Jason gave hospitality and shelter to Paul and Silas and Timothy. Um, it's quite likely there's still a group of believers meeting in his home. Um, in Acts 16, we meet uh, a, a woman, Lydia, who is a merchant, um, resident alien, dealer in purple. She has a home big enough to shelter the early community. Um, the letter to the Romans is carried by a certain Phoebe who is um, a patron of the church in Kenkri, uh, the port city of Corinth. And we hear about a church in Gaius's house. We hear about Priscilla and Aquila having a church in their home. Um, some of the natural leadership and protective role would have, would have uh, been exercised by those who had means to support the church and to protect it. Maybe some who had higher social status who could provide some cover um, apparently, whatever the charge against Paul and his associates in Acts 17, um, Jason was a person of high enough standing to get off with paying uh, a security deposit rather than being punished or thrown into prison or some harsher treatment. Um, so some in the congregation are perhaps exemplary for their labor, for their labor among us. We should be engaged in noticing those people. Noticing them to give them honor and love. Noticing them also to imitate them as they are imitators of the apostles and of Christ. There are some who will be given leadership functions or will, will take on leadership functions. Um, they also should be honored 
And there are some Paul describes as admonishing you. Um, again, it's probably premature to talk about a teaching office, but it's not, all of Paul's letters are pressed so closely together in time, um, and he's writing from Corinth, a community to which he will write back soon, talking about various gifts given to the body, including teachers and, um, and those who are given care for uh, the community's soul. So esteem these people highly in love because of their work. And yet at the same time, don't neglect building one another up, admonishing one another. Um, I think the, the tension between those two sides of what Paul is saying is more acute for us as it's easy for a congregation that um, has professional clergy um, to rely on them and to think that the rest of the congregation is unqualified or uncalled to this one another ministry. Um, and I think First Thessalonians itself doesn't need a whole lot of explanation to allow the one another side to come out really clearly. Um, once we point it out, Paul is actually not speaking here in what follows to a, a subgroup. He's speaking to everyone. And um, so whatever our leaders do by way of example... Um, they are bringing us along as their imitators, as their co-workers as well. Um, I think Paul's aware here, as were many of the moral philosophers that we've been talking about, that it's, it's actually not very easy to have this role of caring for and admonishing others. Um, he's aware, I think, on the one hand, that there is a temptation to harshness uh, in admonishing you can read ancient philosophical treatises talking about the best way to give advice to another person. And um, the intention is central. Harshness can be used for someone else's good, but that's a fine line distinguishing harshness from abuse, which intends the other's harm. And Paul's aware here also of the temptation to retaliate when we are admonished, when people speak frankly to us, not to hear it, receptively, but to defend ourselves or even to go on the attack. Um, he's aware of the temptation to lose patience with others in that long process of encouraging and helping to shape a Christ-like character. And I think he's aware as well of the temptation that we have to lose heart with ourselves, to just give up, to think that there's no hope for us. And so in... Uh, verses 13 and 14 and 15, he addresses this. Be at peace among yourselves if there are some who are admonishing, if perhaps each of us in turn is receiving as well as giving admonishment, we're going to need to pursue peace with one another because we're going to rub each other the wrong way. We're going to hurt each other's feelings. We may wrongly admonish someone and need to be humbly corrected. So be at peace among yourselves. A congregation that is engaged in mutual encouragement and exhortation is going to need to pursue peace regularly. And I think, honestly, the reason why so few of us have any real experience of this kind of frank speech in our congregations is that we're just too darn afraid of... of being rejected by the person we might speak to, or having the 
searchlight turned on ourselves. Um, and so I think this, this peacefulness is part of it. I think about trying to move a congregation to more of this one another ministry, probably in a small group setting rather than we need to get to know one another well enough to, to do this. Um, but that intentionally expecting conflict and intentionally seeking peace and reconciliation has got to be central to that. Um, we were talking yesterday about the, the difference between the, the sort of attraction to the beauty of holiness and a kind of legalism that wants to set up boundaries and checklists. And I think similarly, this idea of mutual admonition can very easily turn into something um, like scolding um, or a kind of moral one-upmanship, but seeking peace among ourselves reorients us toward the peace that we are given in Christ who not only knows us better than we dare know ourselves but embraces us and seeks our good as our Savior and Healer. Verse 14, um, Paul also encourages us to distinguish about uh, distinguish between different, different people or different stages in people's lives. Um, some need to be admonished and here he mentions those who are idle or disorderly is another translation. Um, in 2 Thessalonians, he's going to have to come back to this issue of people not working, which I think is why the NRSV opts for idlers here. But it can refer to a, a more general disorderliness too. It just means being in the wrong place. Um, admonish people who are causing chaos in the community. Maybe strong words, maybe soft words. One has to be wise. But then there are others who are faint-hearted, um, small-souled is the, is the Greek word here. People who just, they can't take a lot of frank speech. They might need more encouragement. Um, Paul doesn't use here a word for weakness. He seems to, to acknowledge that people have different temperaments, um, different personalities. I'm, I'm, I'm reaching for a word. Um, we have a lot of help, not only from modern psychology, but from the church's long tradition of the care of the soul. To, uh, a wise physician is going to diagnose, not just chuck antibiotics at something. And um, a wise brother or sister in Christ is going to listen and seek to discern before just charging in with a kind of one-size-fits-all admonition. And so there may be some who don't need admonishment. They don't need warning. They need encouragement. And then others, Paul says, he says, help the weak. And he doesn't specify what the weakness might be, um, but sometimes there is such a, a lack of health and strength that they don't need admonishment. They don't even need encouragement. They need help. Help the weak. And he says, be patient with all. Be patient with all. Um, this is a great word, patient. It means to have, to have a, a, um, a, a long fuse, long anger. Um, in other words, you don't get angry quickly. You don't have a short fuse. You don't pop off. It, it's a particularly interesting word because um, while much of Paul's terminology is common in these uh, Dr. Phil's and Oprah's of the ancient world, this is a term that actually doesn't show up. And when you start looking for makrothumao or makrothumos to be, um, you find it in the Greek translations of Scripture. Um, and significantly, 
you find it in Exodus 34, where God reveals to Moses God's very own character. The Greek translator has has chosen this as one of the words to translate God's self-revelation. The Lord, the God who is merciful, who takes pity, the God who is slow to anger and full of mercy and true. And this, as you know, is a, is a text that gets picked up in the Psalms, it gets picked up in prophetic writings. Um, this is our God, a God who is patient, long-suffering with us, who, though he is a God who is just and justly angry with evil, yet is gentle and full of mercy and pity for his creation, for us, who is utterly reliable. And um, in Jewish moral philosophy, in Proverbs, in the wisdom of Ben Sirah. Um, This is a word that defines the truly wise person. The wise person is able to be also long-suffering, taking on the character of God. It's clear that this is not a passiveness. That is, this long-suffering is in the context of admonishing and encouraging and helping. It doesn't mean to sit back patiently, but it means to be patiently active, seeking to benefit others. I think if we want a, a Pauline example of this that, um, that discerns different audiences in the congregation and that is somewhat close to hand, we just flip over to 2 Thessalonians 3. Um, and I'll read a section from this if you, if you want, just a couple pages over. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Um, Starting at verse 6, we don't know how soon this letter would have been sent after 1 Thessalonians, perhaps quite quickly. Um, There's still a a good number of scholars who think this is a much later letter written in Paul's name, but um, I don't think the reasons for that are convincing. So let's imagine that Paul has um, written this fairly gentle letter, 1 Thessalonians, and then heard something else about the situation in Thessalonica, and particularly the situation of disorderly people or people not working, has gotten even worse. So how does he do this? Through, through a letter instead of through his presence. Listen to his tone. Listen to what he wants them to do. We command you, beloved, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from believers who are living in idleness and not according to the tradition that they received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. We were not idle when we were with you, and we did not eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day so that we might not burden any of you. This was not because we do not have that right, but in order to give you an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this command. Namely, anyone unwilling to work should not eat. Now we hear that some of you are living in idleness, mere busybodies, not doing any work. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Brothers and sisters, do not be weary in doing what is right. You all take note of those who do not obey what we say in this letter. Have nothing to do with them so that they may be ashamed. Do not regard them as enemies, but admonish them as brothers and sisters. So Paul is um, still on plan B here. He's not able to be there in person. He's exerting his admonishing, teaching office through his letter. 
But notice what he does. He's willing to issue a command, and he does so in as strongest terms as he's able to. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command and exhort you. He reminds them of his own example. It's not as if they haven't had a pattern, but he brings that pattern back up to their minds. He calls on the community to be involved in helping to um, enforce this guideline, this rule, uh, command, he calls it in verse 10, anyone unwilling to work should not eat. He doesn't name names. Maybe he doesn't know names, but it's quite also possible that he's still being a bit indirect here for the sake of, of people's honor. Um, some of you, we hear about this, don't do this anymore. <laughs> we tell you, this is what to do. And then he calls on the community. They're they are to exercise discernment, take note of those who do not obey, and then they are to exercise the social pressure that is really, in a sense, the community's last weapon, which is don't associate with them, not because they are enemies, but in fact because they are brothers and sisters. That they might be ashamed. For Paul, in his social world, this is, this is the greatest motivator that people had to correct their behavior was the public shame. Um, and so, not sure exactly how we might translate that into our own terms. I do think shame is a big motivator. Um, I think shame also has a, a perhaps a, a more negative valence to it for us. Um, we might speak more in a more balanced way of guilt as well. Um, but Paul is trying to get at the conscience of the person who is living in this disorderly and, and exploitative way. So this community turning away from that person, and yet not as an enemy, but as a brother and sister, uh, brother or sister, is an appeal to the conscience. It's a desire for restoration. And um, we might think of other tools that are perhaps more effective um, to bring about restoration. It's not an exclusion for the sake of the purity of the community here. It's exclusion for the sake of the disobedient person. This is finally the last thing, after admonishment, after encouragement, after help, to say, until you're ready to, to act differently or to take a step toward acting differently, we're going to take a step away. Um, so, Paul in action. Um, in action through a letter. This kind of pastoral ministry uh, is just deeply intensive, and there's no way that this is going to happen in a congregation if only one or two people are doing this. There's just no way, and you all know, and you're probably many times stretched beyond what you can bear, um, but Paul is talking about a community where each takes care of the others, where each is seeking the other's good, and that's messier, therefore live at peace among yourselves. <laughs> Um, it will require supervision and teaching and training. Um, but at heart, this is what a healthy community looks like. Verse 15, uh, again, I think taking not just a general call for non-retaliation, which, of course, Paul offers elsewhere, but in particular, if the community is going to be this intensely involved in one another's lives, then this is a, an apposite warning. <laughs> See that none of you repays evil for evil. Um, sometimes 
bad things will happen in a community where this kind of frank speech and deep care for one another is taking place. So don't repay evil for evil, but pursue what is good, always, toward one another and toward all. Don't retaliate. Seek, pursue good. Again, it's not a passive, just suffer evil. It's pursue what is good, which is going to, I think, in most cases, include naming the, the bad thing that happened and refusing to um, be subject to abusive behavior, but to do so in a way that seeks what is good, that seeks peace. I don't think there's any room here for um, the kind of abuse of spiritual authority on behalf or on the part of clergy or on the part of members of the congregation. Um, and it may be that part of what we need to help one another do is resist some of that. Here is a, a place where Paul's um, continuity with Jesus' teaching is quite obvious. Um, and this is a, a mark, as, as Anne was reminding us last night, this is the mark of the healthy church around the world. And it's it's remarkable that God might give us the ability to repay not evil but good, to actually seek the good of one another. But here, for another time, this, we saw this already in, in, in chapter 3, verse 12, um, Paul is talking about doing good not just within the boundaries of the community, but outside as well, to all. Well, um, with verse 16, we get a, a passage that's great to preach on. It's great to memorize for, um, for new Christians. Um, a pithy statement of what, I, I would take this to be a, a short definition of what Paul means when he says, that you, you, we, we want you to learn to walk in a way worthy of the God who calls you into his kingdom. We want you to learn to walk in a way worthy of uh, and, and pleasing to God. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. This, Paul says, is God's will in Christ Jesus for you. If we put that together with the call to holiness in chapter 4, I think it helps to fill out what we were talking about yesterday. That the call to holiness is a call to flourishing. It's a call to joy. It's a call to um, a, a full-throated um, praise of and fellowship with God. Verses 19 to 22 um, take up the question of prophecies. And um, there's a, a bunch of stuff written on prophecy in the ancient church and in the contemporary church. Um, here Paul, if we allow 1 Corinthians to, to fill this in, Paul is talking about intelligible speech that is directed at the upbuilding of the community that in some way is, is inspired by God, is, is, is a gift of God's Spirit working in the community, but is not an infallible word. In fact, is to be tested. Um, tested against Scripture, tested against the wisdom of the community. Um, Tom Gillespie wrote a doctoral dissertation on uh, Christian prophecy where I think he draws a, a very helpful correlation between what Paul thinks prophecy is doing and what the sermon is to do. Um, that it's intelligible, reasoned speech that is um, a gift of God's Spirit to the congregation, a word on target that is um, oriented toward the good news, 
And as that good news is given to us in Scripture and in the life of Jesus and in the ongoing work of God in the community. Um, but I think to restrict it to the sermon would be to take a big step away from Paul where there may be in a service two or three or more with words of exhortation and wisdom and prophecy for the congregation. Paul's concern in 1 Corinthians is actually just to bring some order to it. Here, he seems to find it necessary to say, don't tamp down what the Spirit of God is doing. You know, here's the image of the Spirit as a fire. Don't throw cold water on the fire of the Spirit. And so, there is an openness to hearing from one another words that come from God's Spirit that are directed to our life together. Don't despise the words of prophecies. But at the same time, verse 21, test everything. Because not every word is a word from the Lord. Not everything that we say in our sermons or our Bible studies, not everything that someone in the congregation has to offer as a word from the Lord is necessarily 100% to be accepted. So test everything, hold fast to what is good, and keep away from every form of evil. So with prophecy comes the need for discernment. You see this developed as well in, in 1 Corinthians. Um, prophecy is a wonderful gift. It's not to be quenched, but it is to be tested. We're playing with fire. Uh, we're dealing with holy fire, and um, we need to be able to test that. Um, the early Christian writing I read from yesterday, the teaching of the 12 apostles, the Didache, uh, has some interesting rules about prophecy, and I offer these not because uh, they're anything other than exemplary of the kinds of questions that early congregations had, especially as they were visited by traveling apostles and teachers and prophets. Um, I guess the equivalent today would be um, how do we help our flock discern what to read on the shelves of the Christian bookstore or the Amazon page or who to listen to on the radio. There are lots of people telling us what God has to say for us. Um, here, there's um, a, a set of guidelines uh, in Didache chapter 11. Concerning the apostles and prophets, deal with them as follows in accordance with the rule of the gospel. Let every apostle who comes to you be welcomed as if he were the Lord, but he is not to stay for more than one day unless there is need, in which case he may stay another. But if he stays three days, he is a false prophet. So it's clear these are not pastors. These are not resident teachers. These are traveling. Yeah, I know. <laughs> oh, oh. Exposed. Exposed. Yep. <clears throat> I don't have a car, though, so I'm kind of a captive. When the apostle leaves, he has to take nothing except bread until he finds his next night's lodging. But if he asks for money, he is a false prophet. Don't, just don't even go there. I didn't ask. <laughs> I am not a prophet. What, my, my dean in seminary used to love to say, I am not a prophet, nor the son of a prophet, and I work for a non-profit institution. Anyway. Do not test or evaluate any prophet who speaks in the Spirit, for every sin will be forgiven, but this sin will not be forgiven. However, not everyone who speaks in the Spirit is a prophet, but only if he exhibits the Lord's ways. By his conduct, therefore, will the false prophet and the, pro and the true prophet be recognized. 
That's um, a, a strong echo of Jesus' own teaching in Matthew 7, verse 15 and following. You'll know a tree by its fruits. Look at that pattern of life. <laughs> Woody Woodpecker here again, uh, wanting to come in. <laughs> if any prophet teaches... Oh, no, sorry, I skipped a line. Okay, so the prophet must exhibit the Lord's ways. Paul has taken great pains to remind them of his conduct because that's essential to the truthfulness of his message. Any prophet who orders a meal in the Spirit shall not partake of it. If he does, he is a false prophet. If any prophet teaches the truth yet does not practice what he teaches, he is a false prophet. Yeah, hard words for all of us. Um, more than, more than a few times I have um, thought James was on the, the right track and I wish I had listened and not let many of you become teachers. Um, but any prophet proven to be genuine is not to be judged by you, for his judgment is with God. That, and this is in a very specific situation, actually. If he portrays in a worldly manner the symbolic meaning of the church, I think he says the ancient prophets did this too. So any prophet who lies on his side for 300 days... Uh, don't judge them, don't tell them that they're crazy, but you don't have to do what they do. Um, well, discerning prophecy without despising it. I would say that churches that I've grown up in um, are much more in danger of quenching the Spirit than allowing the Spirit um, such free reign that there is disorder. But Paul wants to hit that balance. And the fact that he has to write letters like this, and especially 1 Corinthians is the parade example of it, shows that it's not easy to get that balance right. And um, perhaps even the notion of balance is a bit off unless we, if we're thinking of the kind of teeter-totter between order and charisma, um, maybe the better kind of balance to think about is the balance of the, the bicyclist roaring down a hill or the skier on the slope. Um, it's a balance that is a balance because you're propelled by uh, an overwhelming force and never in control um, but propelled along with the Spirit to keep on the track. And here the track is a life pleasing to God. <laughs> it could be. <laughs> uh <laughs> I can't explain that. It's a mystery. It's a mystery. It's a morning bird. There you go. Um, well, there's not a lot to say about the last paragraph that doesn't just destroy the impact of what Paul has to say. It's a beautiful prayer here. So I'm going to end by just reading it, but I do want to point out a couple things just to, to pay some attention to. Paul has, has admonished them in verse 13, be at peace among yourselves. Notice that here he names God the God of peace. There's just this constant alternation in Paul's writing between this is what we ought to be and then a reminder that this is who God is. If we're God's children, we will take on the character of God. If we belong to Christ, his life will be formed in us. And so this, this aspiration for peacefulness or for long-suffering is not, it's not like me trying to imitate 
um, Michael Jordan, uh, there's no way I will ever jump the way he does or hit three-pointers the way he does. But this is actually growing into what we already are. It's um, growing into the character of our father, of our brother, Jesus. Um, and so the God of peace, and the prayer that Paul offers is now the corresponding um, prayer that goes with the exhortation. He, he tells them in chapter 4 to pursue sanctification. Here the prayer is, may God sanctify you. And both are necessary, and one doesn't cancel the other. Um, it's not up to us only to make ourselves a community that is pleasing to God. That, in fact, is God's work in us. But God's work in us of making us a holy community, a community that displays God's life to the world, never happens apart from our own efforts, apart from examples to imitate, apart from encouragement and admonition and patience and help and upbuilding. The prayer here is that God keep you spirit, soul, and body. And um, this is a way of Paul, I, I think, emphatically talking about the totality of the self. Some, sometimes folks have tried to see a, a tripartite view of the human being here. The problem is Paul isn't consistent in the way he talks about the human being, and it's to miss his point anyway, which is the, the adjective sound and blameless. Um, wholeness is in both of these adjectives, uh, and completeness and integrity. So fully complete, fully integral. Um, these words show up in a medical writer of the first, second century writing about the full formation of the human embryo. And um, this, this may be over-reading at this point, but when you go to Galatians, Paul talks about being in labor with the Galatians until Christ is formed in them. In Colossians and Ephesians, he talks about the whole community building itself up with its ligaments and tendons so that it reaches the full stature of the new human being who is Christ. And so I would love to read that back into this passage. What is it to be kept holy, complete, and sound? It's to be like Christ. And this is the work that God is doing. God's sanctifying of the community is ultimately forming the image of Christ in us collectively. The one who calls you is faithful, Paul says in verse 24. He's thanked God for the Philippians' faith, their trust, their loyalty to God. He reminds them that this trust is well-placed because God remains loyal. God remains faithful. And if this is God's will for us, then God will do it. Beloved, actually brothers and sisters, pray for us. Paul has emphasized from the beginning of the letter his deep love for the Thessalonians, the mutuality of their relationship. Father, mother, children, brothers, sisters. And so this pray for us is not just a throwaway line. Paul depends on their continued care for him which is primarily going to take the form of prayer, given the distance between them. Paul asks them to act in his place, greet all the brothers and sisters with a holy kiss. Um, this idea of a holy kiss shows up as well in First and Second Corinthians. Uh, I think our translation, passing the peace, is not a bad one. Um, it's a cultural expression of affection, 
we might maybe rather say give each other a hug or something. Um, but it is a, another emphatic way of displaying in the community the new family relationship. It's the kind of kiss for a brother and a sister, for brothers to share, for parents and children. And then finally he says, I solemnly command you by the Lord, this is pretty strong language, that this letter be read to all. It may be that this congregation that first receives the letter is only one of several house churches, and Paul wants to make sure the letter is read elsewhere. It could also be that they are, because of their activity in Paul's mission and in the mission of the gospel, they're networked with churches in Macedonia and Achaia elsewhere. And Paul wants them to copy the letter and send it to these other places, or perhaps to go and read it. Um, the circulation of letters in early Christianity is, is fascinating. We have more information from the first and second century, but it's clear even from Paul's letters that he expects that people will travel and exchange news and that they'll exchange these written letters as well. And then his final prayer is um, redolent of the opening. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with y'all. We're going to have a, a short time, shorter, well, maybe a little longer than usual, about 20 minutes if we take that long for question and answer. We're going to move into sharing the Lord's table together as God's family, as brothers and sisters of one another. But before we go to question and answer, let me um, go ahead and just bless us collectively with Paul's prayer from verses 23 and 24. May the God of peace himself sanctify us entirely. May our spirit, soul, and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray this knowing that you are faithful and you will do this. Amen.